0: for one more week for our pastor, Gary, who uh, saw fit, you know, had to have his shoulder taken apart and put back together, and I'm not sure if it was an L&I type claim where he had a workplace injury where he was working on some new, you know, demonstrations of something and blew his shoulder apart, but um, you will not mistake Gary for a charismatic anytime soon. Uh, He's pretty restrained in uh, one, uh, I guess it's this arm. Anyways, he's doing well. He's pretty comfortable. He's able to drive a little bit, and uh, he plans on being back next week, so that'll be good. Uh, In the meantime, uh, we're going to continue a little series that we started last week on kind of filling in the blanks of the book of James, and that uh, sometimes in the Bible, there will be, like, between a period and the first letter, there might be a whole lot of information in that little blank, and In James, what we've been doing is trying to look a little bit deeper into both the man James that wrote the book and the time that he lived in and what was going on in the church and some things that James wrote in his book of the Bible we see lived out in his life and some of the things he did and with his life. And that's uh, that's what we're going to talk about for today. And today's kind of part two. This is not James. This is Henry Clay. And you might recognize that name if you were particularly the good student of U.S. history. But Henry Clay was a congressman uh, from the state of Kentucky. He would later on go on to be the Speaker of the House. He would be a senator in Kentucky. He would be the Secretary of State. And before the Civil War, Henry Clay might have been the most important politician our country's ever had. My great-great-grandfather, John Wesley Crago good Scottish Methodist name. Uh, My great-great-grandfather was so taken by Henry Clay that he named his son Clay. And then that guy named his son Wesley Clay Crago, and that guy named his son Wesley Clay Crago Jr. My dad named me Wesley Clay Crago as well. Now, that's interesting to me. (laughs) Why is this interesting to you that we're talking about Henry Clay today? By the way, that's my middle name, Clay. Clay. Henry Clay was this amazing politician. He would have been on, I mean, he was in the news. Back then it was, you know, pretty much newspapers. But um, his greatest accolade, what they said about Henry Clay, that was the greatest praise they could give Henry Clay, was he was called the Great Compromiser. He staved off the Civil War for about 40 years not quite single-handedly, but he was able to make compromises so that the South didn't go to war at a time when England was very ready to sweep up the bits and pieces after if we had a Civil War too early, we probably would be a colony of England today. Henry Clay held that off, and he did it very well through compromise. I think it's interesting to look at a guy that the principle of compromise, which is what our, our Constitution is founded on, that Both sides don't get what they want. They have to work together for the common good. That's compromise. This man was the best example of being a compromiser. Would we vote for somebody today that said, I'm a great compromiser? I mean, do you see that? Do you see how far we've come from our roots? I'm digressing slightly about this, but America was supposed to be a country that's founded on compromise. It's safer for everybody. It's more successful in the long term. And we've moved from our foundations a little bit. We don't, we don't support compromisers anymore. Henry Clay was. And Henry Clay has an interesting connection because like Henry Clay, James, author of the book of James, James the Just, James the half-brother of Jesus Christ, James was also a great compromiser, which is part of our story today. And as we dig into that, we'll kind of go through that, and we'll wrap up this uh, central question of James's day and what James worried about and what he had to compromise on. We'll start with this, the central question today, which was our central question last week if you were here. What must I do to be justified? That's the most important question you can possibly ask in your life. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in Jesus Christ. John 3.16, very clear. If you believe, you're saved. You're justified. Now, while that's incredibly important to us, it was even more important in the day of James because this was a little bit more open for debate. They didn't have all of the Bible to go back and look at and say, okay, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Lord Jesus Christ say about being justified? They didn't have that. They had little bits of it. And so this question was paramount on the day of James. And it's important to us. If you remember the words of Martin Luther, he said, it's important that we know this article well. We should teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continuously. So justification is a big deal. Before we launch into this, let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as your group of believers here at Grace Point, your church. We give thanks to you for Pastor Gary and Don their ministry to us, for how you have used them over so long to train so many of us in your word. We thank you for your word that we have in a language we can understand in different formats, and Father, we are blessed richly by you. Father, this morning as we take a look at your word in the book of Acts and in the book of James, I pray that any of my study that is deficient, any of the words that I might mistake, that your Holy Spirit would correct it, and that, Father, all of us would leave here with a clear understanding of you, of your plan for us of your holy word, and that, Father, we would leave here a little bit closer to you and a little bit closer to one another than we are right now. We ask this, all of us, together in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. So three threads I want to follow today, and you'll kind of see this if you're following on your notes. We'll kind of weave them in and out. But the first thread is that we're going to take a look at the doctrine of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Justification, sanctification, glorification. You knew that would happen today. Second thread is a little history of James Uh, What was going on at the time of James? What was James involved with kind of historically? And the third thread is this history of the church as it relates to this question. The earliest part of our church, what must I do to be justified, was a very open question. James was critical to that. So these three threads, while seemingly separate, do come together in a a meeting that happened in Jerusalem. Uh, Talking about salvation and what must I do to be justified. uh Uh-oh. There, up. Here we go. So, quick review. We talk about saved, tends to be one word, but really it's three different terms in the Bible. The English word says saved. Your Bible will say saved. You need to ask yourself which saved are they talking about, because there's three parts. It might be saved meaning justification. Something that happened in the past. When you first believed in Jesus Christ, you were justified, sealed by Jesus Christ Himself, by God, not by you, but by grace through faith. God saved you, and that will save you from the penalty of sin. You will go to heaven, no matter what you possibly do in your life, because God sealed you when you were justified. After that, and it's kind of those things. Why aren't you taken to heaven the moment you're justified? Well, there's work for you to be done. And you might need some work. And that's called sanctification. That's where we're on a day-to-day basis. We are trying to mature. We are trying to be more like Jesus Christ. We are trying to grow in our faith. And that's called being saved from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit is in us now. And trying to be sanctified is the ongoing daily process of being a little bit closer to God. And that means we have the power. We have the choice to avoid sin. Now, someday, maybe soon, maybe long we will be glorified. And that's a different kind of being saved. And that's being saved from the very presence of sin. Well, we'll be with Jesus Christ in person, new bodies, in heaven, and that'll be pretty cool. So when we receive the word saved, you've got to kind of think, is it justified, sanctified, or glorified? Because it's a very important distinction, and that's one of those things that we have to kind of focus on. In the book of James, we talked about this last week, but James starts with, he addresses it to all the brethren, meaning... People that are believers. People that are already justified. Everything we talk about in the book of James, he's talking to people that are already justified. So if he says, do this, don't do that, are those requirements to be justified? No. It's things to be sanctified. It's things to make you a little better. It's things to make you more like Jesus. And so it's not requirements to be saved or to be justified. It's requirements that will help you be sanctified, to be more mature. And that is an important distinction because you don't want to think about, I have to do this in order to be justified, our central question. It's I need to do this because it's good for me. It's good to be more mature. It's good to be closer to Jesus Christ. I should want to do that. That's important. That's what this church believes. That's what my mentors believe. That's what I believe. That's what I'm going to teach today. And we do all that because that's what the Bible says. Amen and amen. So, let's talk about James, the half brother of Jesus and the man James, James the Just or James the Prayer. A little review from last week. We talked about James the Just. James was probably kind of humble. Now, some of these are historic. They're not necessarily in the Bible or they're implied, but I want you to have a feel for what kind of man this was. He never bragged about being the half-brother of Jesus. It doesn't appear in his writings. He describes himself as a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ, a bondservant. That's how he describes himself, not as this great thing. James is Jewish. He was raised Hebrew. He has a great respect for the Word. When you go through his book, there's a lot of Old Testament quotes uh, has great respect for the Hebrew, uh, the first five books of uh, what we would call the Old Testament. James is very skeptical. That's an inference because James never believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior until he was an adult. And I think that's fascinating to live with the Savior, but not quite sure about him. That just is an interesting thing to think about. James was a doer. Everything in his writing, everything that he'll talk about, talks about applying your faith into action. Not to be justified, but to be sanctified. Put your faith into action. He will be a leader in the early church. He will be a compromiser. Uh, He's reputed to be very difficult to kill. They had to do three different things to kill him when there was a big schism in the church. And what's important for our talk today, he was a man who found compromise at the Council of Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about this, this little uh, timeline, which is on your notes. Again, be very careful at picking a specific year. There, it's always a little bit fuzzy. Uh, they didn't keep records like we keep today. So some of the dates might be shifted a little bit, but it, just, it should give you an idea of kind of more or less when things happen and what order they happened in. And the thing that was going on, if you're kind of following around on your notes, we're still talking about James, is James lived at a time when there was this great transition in the church or in the faith, if you will, and that in the Old Testament, the focus of activity was all on the Hebrews, the Jewish people, and it was also kind of centered in Israel, more or less. And there's about a 15-year period just after the the death and resurrection of Christ where the focus is going to shift. It's going to grow outside of Israel to the whole world, and it's going to be focused primarily on Gentiles, and that the church, as we know it, will be for everyone not just for the jewish people god's not done with the jewish people yet but it's different the focus is on gentiles and the last time i checked yes it still is Uh, we are still in what we call the church age right now that that started right there at pentecost and it's continued to this day so that's a quick review um One thing I probably should stop, I don't know if it was an issue to you last week or not, but church is a very generic word in English, and you have to be precise with it. Uh, When I say church now, I mean the New Testament church, the church after the day of Pentecost, our church that we're still part of today. Uh, Old Testament believers were saved by grace through faith, just like us. They were justified by grace through faith. But it probably would be inappropriate to use the term church to describe the Old Testament believers. I did that last week, and I apologize. Um, I would say Old Testament believers. Got it? You don't look like you're really worried about that. Okay, we're going to move on. We're going to keep on going. Um, But that was important to me. Um, So, let's talk about the Council of Jerusalem and the big change. First off, just kind of mentioned it, the change is from Activity of the church going from Jewish to Gentile. Or, sorry, from Jewish to Gentile. And it's growing in great leaps and bounds. There are three main changes that we see in the midst of that that we can separate out. Uh, The first one is worship. Big change in the church was started and introduced by Jesus himself to the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, the Samaritan the good, well, not the good Samaritan, but the the Samaritan woman at the well, in John chapter 4, there's a woman who kind of lies to Jesus, and Jesus kind of lays out this new thing that had never been heard of before to, A, a woman, which was Hebrew men didn't talk to women necessarily like that, and they certainly didn't talk to a Samaritan woman who all of Israel looked down on the Samaritans. The Jews did not, they looked at, Samaritans, the way that a stereotypically white Southerner before the Civil War looked at black people. Uh, it was very much a no, no, no kind of thing. And Jesus says, Hey, this is for you too. I'm offering you eternal life. And you know what? You don't have to go to a certain place to worship. You can worship anywhere. And you worship in spirit and truth. That was a revelation that was new that the church will have a different focus of just being for Jewish people that they'd worship in temple and that there was a priest and there was a way to do it, to all of a sudden, everybody. It's open for everybody, for these people, meaning believers, not locked in time and place, not locked into a location. They can worship anywhere in spirit and truth, and it's for everybody. That's a huge change. second big change is kind of related to that in that there's a a racial issue to this, that the the Jewish people uh, in Israel were a little bit like Japan today, and that racially, they all kind of look the same. They all kind of believe the same. They all kind of eat the same. And it's, it's very familiar. And that's, that's how they've been raised for thousands of years. And all of a sudden now, you're going to be going to church with people who talk funny, eat funny, believe differently. And it's for everybody. And all of a sudden, there's class distinctions. There's financial distinctions. And there's language changes. And all of a sudden, the church is for Everyone. And it grows, and that's a huge change because you you have to give up a lot of things. Or there's going to be a lot of people who have different backgrounds. I mean, there's going to be people that believe in the designated hitter rule and people who don't, and there's going to be people who think that eating meat of different types is fine. It, it, it's everybody together in the church. That's a huge change. And then the third one is you have the law, that the Hebrew people in Israel were raised under the 613 Strictures of the Mosaic Law do this, don't do this, and they're serious. And that is part of their culture. And last week we talked that Theodore Spurgeon talked about the law as this mountain that's impossible to climb. It's there to show you that you need God, that you can't get there on your own. And no one could. It was impossible to climb. We sang about that today that there's no way to get there without Jesus Christ. And yet they tried to follow that. That was important to them to follow these laws, it was part of their identity. And all of a sudden that sort of tossed out the window. Yeah, it's good, but it's not part of being justified. And like any tradition in a church, that's hard to get rid of. We have things we do that someday somebody's going to come along and question it and we'll resist that because that's human nature. And the the Jewish people were resistant to all these changes where the law is not part of your justification. It's like, I don't know, Baptist learning to dance or something. It just threw them off for a little while. They, They had a hard time with that. And all this change, all of it took place from about here to here. It's like 18 years. You know, that's a blink of an eye in history. That's less than a lifetime. That's less than a generation. Lots of people lived through that whole thing. And you can imagine that was probably a little bit hard on them. But there was one big issue, that all those little issues, that all those three changes, but there was one main issue. And that's what we find here at the start of Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea. Do you know it's always some men? You don't see see women causing all these problems. It's always some men or them. And If it's them, I guarantee it's some men. Anyway, some men came down from Judea and they began teaching the brethren Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So, what question is going through your head right now? Saved. Which one is it? Justification, sanctification, glorification. What word is used in there? You go look it up. It is justification. Yes, my mother-in-law was completely correct, which is not a surprise if you know Molly Cole. They were talking to me said, you have to be to be justified. You have to believe and be circumcised. You have to follow the Mosaic law. I don't want to blow past this too fast, but they wanted adult men to be circumcised. That's going to be a problem on a couple different levels, don't you think? As far as like just on a practical level alone, much less the spiritual level. That kind of disagrees with things that Jesus said. So what do they do? What do they do? You've got some men. You've got a problem now in your church. People believe you'd be saved by grace alone through faith. No, it's grace alone plus circumcision. What do they do? Look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Now, I love this. Okay, I'm a government nerd, small government in particular. They came together to look at this. They came together to talk, to share, to debate, and they did it openly. It's like a public hearing. They said, hey, we're going to have this big debate. We're going to call the Council of Jerusalem. And all the leaders of the church came together in the open. And the church members came to listen. They wanted to hear this debate. And everybody went back and forth. And it was, as it appears in the Bible, that this was very open. That they didn't have anybody leading it. They had leaders. But there wasn't somebody that said, oh, this guy knows everything. What do we do? The leaders were probably three And they listened before they made any decisions. They said, well, let's hear from this side, let's hear from this side. What do you think about that? And they went back and forth. What did it look like? Well, they didn't have cameras. So we got a couple here. We have the top one, which is a bunch of white guys from Nebraska with tremendously groomed hair. It it really shows a, a level of hair technology that you wouldn't expect to see in the Middle East at that time. Then we have the bottom one, which is maybe not a real great accurate representation as far as perspectives go, ethnically a little better. And then you have the little halos around their heads. It looks like a halo. You know what that is? That's a halo. <laughs> that's supposed to show the, the the apostles that they're extra holy because they have the halo. And that's James in the middle, white hair, long beard, holding up the mosaic law. Um, if you're into art, This is an important piece of art, and there's probably about 18 hours of discussion to go, just breaking down the symbolism in this wonderful piece. And it's really, if you see it big, it's really cool. Um, I like to think that it's sort of in between those two, uh, that that it kind of looked like. But it was a public place where they came together. The believers were there to talk. It was highly involved. They talked about sharing. They talked about openness. And no one person was assumed to have all the truth. Okay? You didn't have to go through a priest to talk to God. We didn't assume that because you're a Gentile, you really don't know anything about stuff. No, that guy has the Holy Spirit too. This guy has the Holy Spirit. They talked as equals before God. It's kind of a unique concept. Remember, this is 18 years after Pentecost. This is the earliest part of the church, and the church at this time could be considered fragile. This whole thing could blow apart over this one issue on what does it mean What does it take? What is required to be justified? So they didn't split. Peter talked, got up, kind of did some things, and they talked about faithful, and the concerns they had um, are this. First off, there's a Hebrew culture. Most of the church was made up of Hebrews. Not all, because the Gentiles thing is now becoming a big deal. First generation of believers one of their concerns was keeping the church together. They didn't want to split in the church, that God's church is one, we're all one together, that we should be reflected in how we do things. Another concern. There's some pretty clear teaching that they had from Jesus Christ himself, specifically what John the Baptist had recorded, that belief equals justification, not belief plus works equals justification. So they wanted to be faithful to the word, as well as being concerned about our our Hebrew friends and being respectful there. Um, How did they accomplish that? Well, they talked. They debated. They had outreach. They wanted, and this is a concern maybe for your notes as well, is they wanted to be able to have outreach. James, in particular, was very concerned about being able to reach Hebrews to bring the gospel to the Hebrew people and say, hey, Jesus Christ came. He died for your sins. You can be justified through faith. But they also wanted to have outreach to the Gentile world. And adding works, and especially the work of the law in circumcision, was not going to be a great selling point if you're trying to have outreach to adults. So James listened to all this. And there was more than just James in charge. But James was, you might think, like the chairman of the council. He would do this primary speaking. Peter was there. They were, uh, there were Barnabas probably. There were other people talking about it. James is who we record in Acts uh, about what what they came up with. And when it says James, that's our James. That's our boy that wrote that book later on. After everyone finished speaking, James answered. And he starts by saying, listen to me, brethren. I don't know why that strikes me, that they listened. Uh, He didn't go on cable news and shout and scream at people and cut each other off. They stopped and listened to what he said. And James had a verdict that has three parts. So the verdict of James the Just. This is pretty much how James the Just got his nickname, by the way. The three parts are this. First, he reminds everybody the Word is important. He quotes from the book of Amos. He gives a very nice Old Testament setup that what God said is a big deal, and you don't violate that. The Word is the measuring stick by our decisions, not our opinion. Now, reflect on that for just a second. The Word and how God wrote it down is what's important. It's not our opinion on what God said. God said it through people, and there's a specific meaning. And it's not subject to opinion. Secondly, James said, believers do not have to follow the Mosaic Law to be justified, which we kind of knew that would be the right answer, right? He said, no, It's it's belief- Grace through faith. That's all it takes to be justified. Made that very clear. But then he had this third part. That's where it starts in verse 20. He wants everybody, believers, to be respectful of the Hebrew customs. He wants them to essentially say, it's voluntarily abstain. We write to them that they would abstain from things contaminated by idols, fornication, things that are strangled from blood. And he goes, because Moses is still a big deal. Moses is still preached throughout all of Israel and the the Jewish world at that time. He wants the believers to be respectful of that and voluntarily not partake, not to be justified, but to keep unity within the church. Sign of respect, if you will. Um, I think you see that if you uh, like to have a glass of wine with dinner, if you're at a house where somebody does not believe in drinking alcohol you probably don't bring a bottle of wine with you, right? Just, just kind of a little bit common sense respect in that manner. But the compromise that James did satisfied everyone. It satisfied the Hebrew believers. It satisfied the new believers that were Gentile. They had respect for the old ways, and yet they did not compromise the important part of that, which was, how are you justified? And I think that tells us a lot about the man of James, that man, James, is a man of God. He believed in the word of God. He was a man of the church that through creativity, through effort, he was able to achieve a compromise that kept everybody together in the church. He was a man of influence, James. He pulled this all together, and this is what's recorded. And the church went forward with a clear message of what the gospel meant, that it was unpolluted by this idea of adding works to the gospel. James did that. He was the great compromiser. So, impact. Impact. Well, in the short term, I kind of like to look at short term and long term. In the short term, it was successful. The church stayed together, but there'll be a change, and there'll be a a desire to overthrow, and there'll be some politics, and the Romans get involved in that. And when we go back to kind of looking at this timeline, if you look at 62 on your notes, James will be martyred. They will decide that they accuse him of, ironically, breaking the law. The law that James, for his entire life, had shown great respect for, uh, that was the accusation they threw at him, and then they threw him off the top of the temple, then they stoned him, and then they clubbed him. Um, so, short term, the church went forth, the gospel went forth, James will die, but in the long term, the church survived. The church went on the message of belief equals justification went forward clearly into the world you might well when james made that decision the church would probably measured maybe in the thousands little one up in antioch a couple of missionary journeys happened but by the time james would be martyred we started to have books of the bible The church might have measured by the end of the century in over a million. And it was spread everywhere. It had gone all across the Western known world at that time. Long-term impacts, which James got to watch from heaven. There were three. First, the church, as we just said, exploded in growth. Went from, well, if you want to count really specifically, 12 in about A.D. 32 by A.D. 100 over a million. A.D. 12 or A.D. 30, uh, the church was in Jerusalem. By A.D. 100, it was up close to England, all across what we would call Europe nowadays. It exploded in growth. Second long-term impact. By the time James dies and just shortly thereafter, 21 more books of the Bible will be written. That all of a sudden there's a written record of what God needs us to know. Not written to us, but written for us. And having that on paper, papyrus or electronically, is something we can refer back to. Third one, and this is kind of a little... I like to throw this in because I like U.S. history. In the Council of Jerusalem, they didn't have a, a pope. They didn't have a, this guy will make all the decisions and he knows everything and we know nothing. They didn't have to go through a priest to talk to God. That was a change. And that notion that started with Jesus about when the Holy Spirit comes into you, that you have a direct connection from God. It says it on the front of our bulletin that the priests in this church are all of us. Believer priests. There is No no one's got a deeper connection to God than one another. We're all equal before God. That notion that you can see in the Council of Jerusalem, the way they debated, will come forward in history to these uh, colonies on the North American continent in about, you know, 1600s, And they started thinking about, well, if we're all equal before God, all men are created equal before God, so I don't have to go to the priest to confess my sins or do anything else. I can do it myself. Gosh, maybe we should look at that politically too. Maybe all men are created equal politically. That was called the Great Awakening, and it had a tremendous influence upon the colonists in North America to the point where they decided to declare independence. And that's kind of, we have a little connection with that in America. Man is saved by grace through faith. Henry Clay, James the Just, compromisers. The struggle that they went through to try to compromise, keep unity, keep it together. They were both successful. They both died before they got to see all their results. And it's kind of an interesting little connection. And that's the big question we had. What must I do to be justified? The answer was believe in Christ. But, you ever thought about this? When you're justified, why aren't you taken up to heaven right away? I thought about it. It That was a big deal when I was in high school. I was saved when I was 14. That just, why? why? What is the point of all this being down here? And, There's another question, and this is kind of your application question. You have one big question in your life, most important question you ask. What must you be justified? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That's the most important question you'll ever ask in your life. But after that, if you believe and are justified, your sanctification is a million daily questions. What must I do to be sanctified? That's a good question to wake up in the day with. What am I doing to be sanctified today? What do I do today to be more mature in Jesus Christ? What do I do with my actions, the decisions I make today to reflect that I believe in Jesus? Do I run the city in a way that is considered Christian? Do I treat people in a Christian way? Do I fulfill my time in ways that show my beliefs? How is my life different because of my belief? Those are those daily questions. And the kind of cool thing about it, I guess... Is that it's all about us. It's our decision. God has given us His Holy Spirit. It's up to us to do something with it. The decision we make are our decisions, it's our choice. And being justified is God, but sanctified is God's given us the power. And it's up to us to decide. And we don't want to, I guess, we don't want to have passive prayers. Oh, God, make me a holy person. Help me be sanctified today. It's make this, help me make better decisions, God. Help me choose to reflect your life and what I do. Look for opportunities to do that. And it's something we have to work at. And that's about only the guidance you're going to get on how to apply this because that's really up to you. I don't know how your life and how that looks in your life when you get up in the morning. How are you going to be sanctified? I don't know what you're facing. But I guarantee you in this room of, you know, roughly 170 people or so, There's about 170 different stories going on about what is important, what we have to do, and what we're struggling with, because all of us are struggling. The one thing I'll tell you is a general rule with James. James does give some general advice. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. He says, receive the word of God and be a doer of the word of God. That's probably enough for us. So I hope the short little history, a little bit on James, a little bit on salvation and justification fills in the gaps when Gary comes back next week and we go back into James chapter one. I hope that gives you a little bit of perspective on the person that God used to write that book and that when he talks about being about acting on your faith, James has been there and done that. He had to do it in some pretty high stakes poker uh, when the church was at its earliest, earliest stages little insight, a little background, a little history, and even a little American history thrown in for good measure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you that we can all be together under this roof. We thank you so much, Father, that we don't worry about the police breaking down the doors and interrupting our service or that there are any restrictions at all on our ability to worship you, our ability to come before you, our ability to proclaim your name, to own your word. We have as many copies as we want. Father, we recognize this morning that these are blessings from you, not the work of men. You've used men and women, Father, to help protect us, but that all comes from you. Father, we thank you for this time, and I pray that for all of us here, whether uh, we're young, old, learning about you, or been knowing you for decades and decades, that, Father, all of us would leave here again, touched by your word, that your word would penetrate our hearts and make us a little bit more like your son today. We pray that. In Jesus' name, and as we go to this time of worship of you, Father, may your spirit empower what we sing and what we believe. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.